0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Steven Siegel, and today we'll be joined by historian Siobhan Hearn, who is the author of Policing Prostitution, Regulating the Lower Classes in the Late Russian Empire, published by Oxford University Press just out in 2021. Thanks, Siobhan, for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Uh, So a little bit about Dr. Hearn. She is a historian of gender and sexuality in the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union and received her PhD from the University of Nottingham. She is currently a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow at Durham University in the UK. She is also one of the editors of the great website, Um, called Peripheral Histories, a collaborative digital history project exploring peripheral spaces in the Russian Empire, Soviet Union, and post-Soviet world. So I've got a lot of questions for you, and I think our our listeners uh, here on new books, Russian and and Eurasian studies, and and new books, Gender and Sexuality, are going to be really curious about this book. So I just wanted to start by asking you what um, brought you to this subject. How did you find your interest in this story?
1: Well, I guess this book is the accumulation of two long-term interests, or maybe I should say obsessions or love of Russian history and gender history. So one of these obsessions started a little bit earlier than the other. In England, if you want to go to university, one of the most common routes for admission is taking standardised tests called A-levels, which you study for for two years between the ages of 16 and 18. And you choose to do these in three or four subjects, and one of my subject choices was history. Within these subjects, your teacher can choose the broad topic that the class will focus on, and I just had this absolutely wonderful teacher who chose the Russian Revolutions of 1917. So when I was 16, I started studying the history of late imperial Russia and the Soviet Union with this brilliant teacher, and I was completely hooked from there. Um, Relatedly, I was quite a moody and self-indulgently introspective teenager, so 19th century Russian literature really spoke to me, and from this point on, I haven't been able to leave Russian history or Russian literature alone. And then gender and women's history was something that I became interested in a little later at university. So like many people who studied history at school, my interpretation of history was that it was all about broad processes, big events and towering personalities. And then going to university to study history and finding out that things like crime and culture, the environment and the family could be subjects of historical analysis completely blew my mind. I spent much of my undergraduate studies, which I did at Swansea University in Wales, where I studied English literature and history choosing modules about gender and sexuality, and of course, Russian and Soviet history. My undergraduate dissertation was a comparative study of prostitution in late imperial and early Soviet Russia, but based solely on sources in translation because I didn't speak Russian back then. Mm-hmm. And then this topic later became the subject of my PhD thesis, upon which this book is based.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm particularly interested in what drew you to um, the history of gender and sexuality. So uh, were were there any particular books or um, research? I'm, I mean, I'm thinking of Laurie Bernstein's work on Sonia's daughters for the history of prostitution in, in Russia. What drew you to the subject?
1: I'm really glad that you mentioned um, Laurie Bernstein's book. This was hugely inspirational for me. I read it as an undergraduate. I absolutely loved it back then, and I still love it now. It's a real classic in the histories of prostitution. And it was actually the first history that I read of prostitution, and then later went back to other earlier classics, like Judith Wolkowitz's book on Victorian Britain um, and Louise White's book on colonial Nigeria. So, yeah, I kind of started with Russia and then went out from there but I've read mm-hmm. many fantastic histories of prostitution as, as an undergraduate and still continue to really love and learn a lot from those
0: books today. hmm And what would you say uh, for our listeners is your big argument from your introduction? So I know that you're focusing a lot on lower class prostitution and on, um, let's say, both social history and gender history. So- uh, how, how would you conceptualize your um, your argument, your thesis?
1: So, yeah, this book is a social history of prostitution in the final decades of the Russian Empire. Um, maybe I should outline a little bit exactly what I'm talking about here. So from 1844 until 1917, prostitution was legally tolerated across the empire under a system known as regulation or nadzor, supervision in Russian. Russia wasn't the only... Um, Empires to have a system like this is quite common across continental Europe in this period and um, in various other colonial possessions of the British and French empires. So under the Russian system, as in many other systems of regulation, women who worked as prostitutes had to register their details with their local police or their medical police committee, which was a provincial organisation responsible for implementing um, regulation. So, after they did this, they swapped their internal passports, which were documents that they needed for migration and for obtaining employment, for a medical ticket, just also known as a yellow ticket, which was an ID card specifically for registered prostitutes. They were theoretically required to attend bi weekly gynecological examinations, and the results of these examinations were stamped upon their medical tickets. This is because regulation had the stated aim of preventing the spread of venereal diseases like syphilis and gonorrhea, which were rife in late imperial Russia. Now, the goals of regulation were not just medical. Registered prostitutes had to abide by a whole host of restrictions governing their movement, visibility and behaviour. And there were also rules for brothel keepers to follow aimed at keeping commercial sex invisible within urban society. Now, ironically, regulation actually made prostitution more visible, both to urban residents in the Russian Empire and also to historians. As it established the Russian imperial state as a kind of service provider, guaranteeing disease-free sexual intercourse to heterosexual men and also hiding prostitution within urban space. Registered prostitutes and brothel Madame's found plenty of ways to subvert the rules, much to the irritation of their neighbours and other members of educated society. So, in my book, I'm particularly interested in exploring how this state regulation of prostitution was implemented, experienced, and resisted by various groups that interacted with the world of commercial sex. So, for me, studying prostitution is about interrogating power dynamics, both Mm at the state and the street level. So, the relationship between the Russian imperial state and its subjects, as well as the relationships between women who sold sex and their clients, their managers, the police and also wider urban communities.
0: And could you talk to us a little bit about your archives? I I know that you um, wound up using a lot of sources outside of the world of St. Petersburg and Moscow. So uh, where did you go? And um, could you tell us maybe initially what you found in places like Estonia and Latvia and Ukraine and Belarus?
1: Yeah, so I actually started the research only in the capital. So I worked in Moscow and St. Kittsburg for a couple of months and it was actually my PhD um, supervisors, particularly um, my PhD supervisor, Sir Badcock, who's written regional histories of the Russian Revolution, really encouraged me to get out into the provinces and have some different archival experiences than the ones that you would have in the state archives. So I decided to go to a port city and almost at random chose the city of Arkhangelsk in Mm -hmm. um, the Russian north, just a few miles outside of the Arctic Circle. And I had a wonderful month there and found really, really interesting information that challenged a lot of the central archival material and sort of demonstrated the importance of place, the social, economic, environmental, cultural context of Arkhangelsk had a huge impact on the way that prostitution was policed and also understood within the city um the baltic exploration came a, a little bit later on a different research trip during my phd it was a particularly miserable winter in moscow and i'd sort of exhausted yeah. all I in the archives and was thinking oh where can i go so i just looked on scanner for places to fly from Moscow that i could get to quite easily and i ended up working in the national archives of estonia in tartu um this is my favorite archive of all time anyone who knows me will know that i talk about this archive quite a lot much of (laughs) their um and i just had a wonderful experience there and again found this sort of importance of regional variation so i continued this regional um analysis by then working in riga during my phd and then while I was um, completing my first postdoctoral project, went to Minsk and Vilnius and Kiev to get more of this regional story of the regulation of prostitution.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. And what is the scope of your book? So I, I see it, it's mainly set within the first, uh, sorry, the final two decades of the Russian Empire before the revolution. Um, did you want to expand it? Or let's say, what, what were your... Uh, Initial impressions before you hit the archive?
1: Well, in the UK, when you start a PhD project, you have to propose your project. So you have to know exactly what you're going to study, and you get funding based upon your project proposal. So I'd proposed a project, um, sort of comparing late imperial and early Soviet Russia, obviously looking at prostitution, and then went to the archives to just see what I could find. Now, in the archives, I was finding really rich materials on the late imperial period that were moving beyond top-down perspectives. Um, but then for the early Soviet period, I found I was just looking at a lot of directives. Um, I'm really struggling to access experiences in the same way that was possible for the late imperial period. So I decided to have the early Soviet period as a side project and just focus on the late Russian Empire for, um, for the book. And the reason it's situated in these last 17 chaotic years of the Russian Empire is because I feel like this is a really important moment where the relationship between subject and state is subject to rapid and frenetic transformation because of mass rural to urban migration and um, the impact of rapid urbanization and industrialization. Um, and also growing self confidence amongst um, ordinary Russian subjects in light of the revolutions of 1905. So it felt like particularly
0: important mm-hmm.
1: period to situate right. this research, but a lot of it is applicable for the late 19th century as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, how did you um, imagine laying out your chapters? So you have five chapters. Uh, what are the topics, and how did you decide to organize that?
1: So the. Social history element really drove that for me. I wanted to look at prostitution and really sort of illustrate the rich diversity and wonderful tapestry of late imperial Russia, um, urban life in this period, which is how it looks to me anyway. So I decided to look at each group that was interacting with the commercial sex industry um, in each chapter. So beginning with women who sold sex, then looking at men who paid for sex. And then managers of prostitution, so brothel madams and pimps, then the police, and then finally moving on to wider urban communities.
0: And I wonder if we could move into some of the stories in um, your initial chapters, especially on the policing of prostitution. So I'm really struck in reading your book about um, the letters and um, a lot of the sort of detailed petitions in order to recover the agency of people who were involved in the prostitution industry and and commercial sex. So could you talk a little bit maybe about some of the stories in in your archival finds?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad you've asked this question because this book is 100% all about the letters. So the source that I draw most in the book is letters sent by, I guess, ordinary people, so non-elites, who would have been categorized by the authorities as peasants or lower-class urban dwellers to the Tsarist authorities. So the Russian Empire is a really interesting place to do this kind of research because there's a long-standing tradition of public supplication, whereby individuals from across the social spectrum penned letters or, in their words, petitions to the authorities to ask for specific things. And in these letters, they employ really sophisticated rhetorical techniques in order to achieve certain ends, They role-play characters, they repeat the same language of officialdom back to them. For example, like citing specific terms from legal statutes or other official documentation. And importantly, being illiterate or not speaking Russian, as we know millions of people in the Russian Empire did not speak Russian as their first language, was not necessarily a barrier to this kind of civic engagement. So there were well-established networks of scribes who were able to write on behalf of the supplicant or translate the letter into Russian. For example, in the archives, you can see letters that are written in Russian with a signature in Latin script indicating, Mm -hmm. in the case of my work, that the individual was a German, Latvian, or Estonian speaker, or simply marking three Xs indicating their illiteracy. Now, in these letters, people share information about their personal lives and circumstances, talking about their aspirations, experiences, challenges, and even sexual relationships. Now I'm a really nosy person, so I spent mm-hmm, hours right. pouring over mm-hmm. <laughs> thousands of these letters. I can in the see that. Yeah. And I but I love these sources because they allow us to examine ordinary people's engagement with circulating discourses on gender, sexuality, morality, and health, but also show how the relationship that lower class people had with the institutional structures of the empire was complicated. And mm-hmm. in this first chapter in particular, it kind of shows that prostitution was something that was Contested, acknowledged, and you can see the language that women use who either worked in the commercial sex industry or who had been, as they perceived unfairly, registered as prostitutes because of their engagement in sexuality that was deemed to be inappropriate for women in this time. You get to see how they chose to construct their story to the authorities and the kind of methods that they used in order to get what they wanted. And this sort of diversity is what I absolutely love about this topic.
0: Mhm. And could you talk uh, from this first chapter maybe be even beyond the numbers and census statistics and uh, about the female work so it as you mentioned it it seems to have been very unstable and and seasonal and I would guess police really had their hands full in, in putting these lists together.
1: Yeah, so women's work in general in the late Russian Empire was predominantly Um, very low paid and seasonal so prostitution is um, a different kind of work that offers women different kinds of options to the other options that were available to them in this period so in this particular chapter I kind of explore how some women who engaged in commercial sex um, constructed themselves as urban workers in their letters to the authorities and how some of them went on strike for better conditions in the early 20th century But also look at how prostitution was predominantly um, labour associated with migration. So it could be understood to be something that was um, engaged in seasonally, like other forms of female work. Mm -hmm. Um, And this varied across the empire. But also prostitution in the eyes of some um, police patrolmen and some of the petitioners, was absolutely not perceived to be work. It was perceived as debauchery. It was perceived as something... um, that was morally inappropriate, and you can see this in the way that women are forced to be registered as prostitutes, even when there's absolutely no evidence of their engagement in commercial sex. And it reflects more the demands of a heteronormative patriarchal society rather than any kind of understanding of labour in, in late Imperial in Russia.
0: Mm-hmm. And and I wonder if you might even talk a little bit about. Um, some Russian cultural and literary history. You know, I think of the novels of Dostoevsky and, and Tolstoy and how they um, portrayed prostitutes as characters. So again, you know, how do you read around um, those particular images and, and stereotypes and maybe, you know, even the sort of moralizing about promiscuity?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of... Um... Very prominent examples in Russian nineteenth and early twentieth century literature um, of prostitution, and for this, Kolynewsky's work is especially um, useful. She looks at this in detail. Um, yeah, it's it's difficult to get past these stereotypes, but then once you get into the archives and you start to see sources that are produced by your research subjects, it kind of demolishes these stereotypes and sort of illuminates the symbolic nature of um, prostitution in the late Imperial Russia how these characters are often sort of portraying the author's own perceptions of sexuality in work rather than actual experiences of women who engage in the commercial sex industry. And getting past the literary sort of um, caricatures is even more problematic when we get to other parties in the commercial sex industry. So madames in particular, um, they're absolutely vilified in lots and lots of examples of stories and books that we could talk about, Um, The Pit. Um, there's right. also a, yeah, a very a good overweight, money-grubbing, yeah. unattractive woman in um, crime and punishment. And then getting past that to look at the sources that they produce kind of complicates the picture and allows us to interrogate the relationships that these people had with um, other people interacting with the commercial sex industry, but also with the um, the structures of the Russian imperial state as well.
0: -hmm and and I guess I would also ask um obviously if, if we're talking about the clients as as well as those who were um, selling sex how do you read the role-playing of, of men as well and um, especially when you're getting into the provincial police do do they seem to be supportive of women selling sex or do they seem to be more like micromanagers taking part in this system of Um, paternalism and regulation
1: yeah that's a really good question because um i guess i see it from two perspectives so the kinds of sources that we have that are produced by clients are letters to the authorities and these are usually only penned when something's gone wrong so when they've contracted a venereal infection after a commercial sex transaction um and they like to, well, the ones that I found in the archives, obviously, these are limited sources, and these are only the specific men who chose to write to the authorities. The re- it really shows this relationship between clients and the authorities in their perception as this service provider and customer. So if something has gone wrong with the thing that I've paid for, and I need to complain to the authorities about it um, in order for that problem to be fixed. And they point the finger at representatives of the regulation system that are quite unpopular in literature, like brothel madame's. Um, but they also point the finger at doctors, um, calling them incompetent, um, because they were easy fodder, really. And The relationship between the Russian imperial state and the medical profession is really um, yeah. contentious in this period. But that's only part of the story, because male bodies are subject to state intervention in this period, too, under the banner of disease control. Definitely not to the same extent as women. They bear the brunt, especially women engaged in paid sex. But specific groups of men, specific control populations, are definitely of interest to the imperial authorities in this period. So one is um, migrant workers, so men who left their villages and went to towns and cities temporarily to engage in factory work or or other kinds of day labour. In theory, they're meant to be examined for venereal diseases, especially syphilis, before they return to their villages. And this was deemed to be essential in order to prevent the spread of manure diseases in rural space um, i'd say in theory there because the practice is debatable but there yeah. are at least attempts to conduct this kind of surveillance on um male lower class um, urban workers and peasants and then the other really important group that's subject to this kind of bodily regulation is the military so the mm-hmm. military um are often perceived to be sort of the key consumers of commercial sex and their bodies are examined by the military authorities fairly regularly and they're kind of the target of lots of vd and um, preventative initiatives i was really struck in the archives when i was looking at material about um sailors in the baltic fleet in the port city of um, leopair in latvia which was then Labava in russian um, and the kinds of regulations that they had to abide by kind of echoed some of the regulations that registered prostitutes had to abide by in terms of making their bodies available for inspection on a regular basis but also abiding by rules, governing their movement, visibility and behaviour in similar ways. Obviously not to the same extent as registered prostitutes but it's interesting to see those echoes between the two groups and I guess that's kind of why I use the subtitle yeah. regularly in the lower classes is because it's not just about women who engaged in paid sex, it's much, much wider, this net of regulation.
0: Mm-hmm. And that was one of my questions for you, Siobhan. I was, I was wondering about prostitution at different levels of society. So if you could maybe say a few words about that. I know you're studying mainly um, prostitution as a lower class phenomenon, but did you also find it as an upper class phenomenon or higher, let's say, middle class phenomenon uh, in some of these places? Because uh, I guess I, I sort of wonder, Lubava is a great example. Arkhangelsk would be another one as a port city. What, what sort of things you found there?
1: Yeah, so I do see regulation as a system primarily staffed by and um, engaged in by people who hail from the lower classes. So the vast majority of women who are registered as prostitutes would be identified as peasants um, or lower class urban workers by the authorities. Same can be said for brothel madams. And um, also the vast majority of clients. So the reason that we know this is in certain cities, there were brothel ranking systems where mm-hmm. the authorities ranked brothels first, second or third class. And then this had an impact on how long they were allowed to stay open and actually the prices that they were allowed to charge for sexual intercourse and the dues that brothel madans paid to the authorities in order to keep their establishments open. So it was a lot cheaper to run a lower-class brothel, and obviously that got more expensive as you go up this um, ranking scale. So although um, upper- and middle-class prostitution certainly existed, it's just not as prevalent as the um, the lower-class prostitution that I was able to find. And the higher you get up, the more euphemistic it seems to appear to me. Um, mm-hmm. There's just less information in the archives, and that in itself is interesting. Yeah, that's about- hard. Yeah, why those groups are hidden from this sort of documentary record in a way the lower class um, women were just not.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm 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 struck and I'm really impressed by how how you make the invisible visible throughout the book. And and I think um, one of the great examples of this is in your in your third chapter about the madames and um, as managers and. Um, in discussing some of their responsibilities, I wonder if you could introduce how you went about researching this. I mean, through, you know, again, the stereotypes of, of the decades that you're discussing, including the you know, the roles of the popular press and philanthropic societies and medical d- discourses. So how, how do you understand the roles and the agency of the, of the madames uh, in this period?
1: Yeah, so I came to this chapter very much um, thinking that I was going to be writing about representations of brothel madames um, because they're quite ubiquitous in popular culture in this period. And as we discussed earlier, they're demonised as exploitative, um, often unattractive, seems to be a very um, key characteristic. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: And often the depictions of brothel keepers are very um, much an outlet for anti-Semitism. And, yeah, like, I really wanted to get behind the sort of realities of brothel keeping in the imperial Russia, sort of approach it from a social history perspective. So like other um, groups that were interacting with the commercial sex industry in this period, brothel madams wrote letters to the authorities all the time. And like other groups, illiteracy was not a barrier to um, interacting with the authorities, so we actually have quite a rich documentary record of um, their interactions, or written interactions with the authorities. So a couple of examples maybe that I can pull out.
0: Um, sure, please, yeah.
1: So in Vilnius in the early 20th century, there was um, a case of real conflict between brothel, I will say, brothel madams in the city and um, the Vilnius city authorities. So in order to prevent the exploitation of women who were engaged in paid sex in brothels by their managers, the Vilnius police introduced um, a mandatory savings book for each woman working at a brothel in which the brothel madame had to deposit a certain percentage of a woman's wages um, in order to let them build up a savings account and then if they wanted to leave prostitution, they would be able to do so with this sort of lump sum that they would approved over the years. It's important to note here that the rules of regulation actually gave brothel madams ample room for exploitation. They were allowed to keep a lot of their employees' wages um, literally written into the rules of regulation, so it was not an equal relationship by any um, sense of the word. So the brothel madams and vilners hate this new rule and write mm-hmm. a series of letters to the authorities really protesting against it. And in these letters, you could see how they situate themselves or how they present themselves as sort of guardians of public health. You know, we examine these women, guardians right. of public morality. We That's keep them in our, yeah, like we keep them in our brothels. We keep the windows closed. No one can see all the debauchery spilling out onto the streets. And they really position themselves as very important members of society um, who are having their rights sort of taken away from them by this new obligation to provide a very pitiful amount. I think it's like 7% of the women's. Um, earnings get deposited into this account. So, when they write the letter to the authorities, um, the women are illiterate, so they communicate via a scribe. We don't know what their first language was. It could have been Polish, it could have been Lithuanian, and um, we will never know. And they actually presented evidence of brothel keeping practices in other parts of the empire. So, they talk about how brothel madams operate in Warsaw. Um, the way they're expected to um, engage with their employees is very different to us and they talk about how in no other city of the empire is a brothel keeper as exploited or as burdened Mm -hmm. as they are in illness and this knowledge of what's happening in other parts of the empire also the sort of self-representation of brothel keepers was very very interesting to me and Mm -hmm. I really wanted to understand more of this and of course you find ample evidence of exploitation, ample evidence of violence committed against um, women who worked in brothels. But that's like one side of the story. And there's also a lot more to brothel keeping in late imperial Russia than just the stories of exploitation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wonder um, if you could say a few words about uh, the other scholarship on prostitution in in Central and Eastern Europe. So you know, I'm I'm thinking of the work of Nancy Wingfield, for instance, on the provincial newspapers, or or Keeley Studder Halstead, or um, Philippa Hetherington. Um, so again, you know, how how you're reading through your sources em- empirically to come up with with newer or at least different stories of of prostitution.
1: Absolutely, I'm really glad that you mentioned these um, three scholars because I had them down on my list as well. Um, Nancy Wingfield, Keeley stutter Halstead, and Philippa Hetherington are doing fantastic work on Eastern Europe and looking at um, regional case studies and sort of transnational, trans-imperial connections. Uh, And they're doing really fantastic work on the history of prostitution. It's just a really, really exciting uh, field to be involved in at the moment. Um, My approach is a little different because I'm looking at this social history perspective. So trying to understand how ordinary people conceived of or presented Um, their engagement in the commercial sex industry to those in authority. And of course, these are not um, problematic sources. I'm not trying to pretend that I've got the real story here, but it's interesting to me that people chose to present themselves in this way. And Mm -hmm. it really shows the engagement of ordinary people with ideas about prostitution and how this shifts um, in the early 20th century as well.
0: Yeah. And so uh, how how does your book... um understand police and policing. So I get the impression that um, there's a certain folly of micromanagement here on many different skills and many different levels, this, this idea of regulation and control of women's bodies. Um, but how does it work, let's say on, on that street level, which, which you cover so well um, in so many of these cities?
1: So I was really interested in the police angle in this project. Um, This is something that developed after my PhD thesis. It's something I did my postdoctoral work on. I really wanted to understand um, the relationship between policer and policed. So how the police interacted with registered women and how they interacted with brothel keepers, the people that they're meant to be enforcing the rules upon. The scholarship on policing in late Imperial Russia really does show that it's a rather under police society there's a huge um lack of police across the russian empire but i wanted to move beyond these statistics to sort of look at how policing worked on a day-to-day level in this specific um context so just to make it very clear the czarist police were really incompetent and they had absolutely (laughs) no idea about how many women who were selling sex across the russian empire yeah like they consistently struggled to impose control over mobile populations of which women who sold sex were recognizable contingent because they just didn't have their technology manpower resources and perhaps even the desire to enforce the spatial segregation and close monitoring of women who worked as prostitutes that was sanctioned in the rules of regulation and they also grossly overestimated how far they could rely on ordinary people to help enforce these ambitious policies and overstated how far registered prostitutes were excluded from wider urban communities. And one of the most important findings, I think, when I was doing this research, is that the lives of policer and policed were closely and sometimes even intimately intertwined. So police patrolmen relied on bribes from brothel madams to supplement their very low wages, and they mm-hmm. were even regular clients themselves. And one of the chapters, this particular chapter about policing, I love the sources of um, women who wrote to the police to just very, very reasonably tell them that they were going to break the rules. So mm-hmm. there were restrictions on real their break. travel. But yeah, I love rule breakers in the archives. I mean, just <laughs> telling the police, I'm going to the coast for a bit, I'm going to my dacha, I'll be back whenever, I'll do my medical <laughs> examination when I feel like it. And yeah, 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 yeah. I loved... I loved seeing that relationship between police and police that is often so um, absent in the archives. You don't get to see those personal interactions. I was really, really interested in exploring that further.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I'm wondering what happens in 1914 then with the First World War and the Tsarist government and the already incompetent um police establishment and and underfunded and and maybe understaffed in the provinces. So what, what changes in 1914? And then, of course, uh, the next question begging it will be what happens with, with the Bolshevik Revolution.
1: Yeah, so the First World War is an absolute disaster for the regulation of prostitution. If the police were unable to achieve their objectives in peacetime, they were absolutely incapable of achieving their objectives in wartime. Um, registered women violated all of the migratory restrictions that were placed upon them um, commercial sex became ever more visible in society in the context of wartime. Um, there were some state policies towards women who engaged in prostitution such as attempts to support them away from um, key strategic cities like Riga and also Tartu but these were very unsuccessful because they just didn't have the resources to implement these very um, ambitious attempts to control population movement in the context of war. Also, regulation was incredibly unpopular throughout the final decades of the Russian Empire, um, and it was attacked on medical, moral, and uh, medical and moral grounds in philanthropic, popular, and um, political and medical discourse in the decades before 1917. So, charitable organizations devoted to rescuing fallen women bemoaned the Tsarist state sanctioning of premarital and extramarital sex. And feminist groups criticized regulation's institutionalization of the sexual double standard and promotion of gender inequality. And then on the other hand, you had reform-minded doctors opposing regulation for its failure to prevent the spread of VD. Um, and opponents from across the left and the right of the political spectrum in the state Duma found common ground in linking prostitution to economic hardship and immoralizing about women who sold sex. So all mm-hmm. this has happened in the decades before 1917, The war makes everything so much worse, so much more visible. And then by the time revolution breaks out in February 1917, the regulation of prostitution had become an increasingly political issue, deeply connected to the corruption of the Tsarist police, the empire's inadequate medical infrastructure, and the crippling injustices of the patriarchal gender order, sexual double standard, and the limited opportunities available for upward social mobility within Russia's very um, stratified society. Mm -hmm.
0: So I I wanted to just follow up on uh, the question about the First World War in 1914. So what changes in the revolutionary year with the two revolutions in February and, and in October?
1: So after the February revolution, medical police committees quickly ceased to exist in certain towns and cities across the Russian Territory. And in certain cities like Petrograd and the capital, the police were dissolved, attacked, imprisoned and even murdered. And this also happened in provincial towns too. So in the months that followed this complete collapse of the Russian autocracy, medical experts, philanthropists and jurists put pressure on the provisional government, which was one of the centres of power that um, emerged to replace the Tsarist government in Petrograd, to abolish regulation as it was a really unwelcome reminder of the Tsarist past, and deemed incompatible with a new society that was founded on democratic principles. So the provisional government bowed to this pressure and finally formally um, repealed regulation in July 1917. It's important to say that this was largely quite a symbolic act as the regulation Mm. of prostitution just stopped functioning in many towns and cities um, before this period
0: hmm And in hindsight, I do have to ask a question about male prostitutes and male prostitution. So, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of, of a lot of the work of Dan Healy and Homosexual Desire um, or Louise McReynolds and, and how she um, talks about the popular press. So, you know, in bathhouses and things like that, it, did you find in the archives um, work on male prostitutes and male prostitution, or at least to sort of understand the agency of Men in that particular way?
1: So, the works that you mentioned, Dan Healy, Louise McReynolds, and also Olga Petrie, are absolutely fantastic explorations of the world of male prostitution in late Imperial Russia. And unfortunately, I didn't find things in the police files because regulation mm-hmm. really underwrote the assumptions of a heteronormative society and really rigidly right. defined prostitution as in its legal understanding, as an act that could only really happen between a female prostitute and a male client. So in the police files, I didn't find information about male prostitution. I'm going to assume that it would be categorized as something quite different um, Uh because it's not something that the Zara state particularly wanted to profit from as they did from the regulation system or um, be seen to be controlling within society. But yeah, there's, there's, that doesn't mean that it didn't exist. It was absolutely ever-present. And the work on bathhouses in particular really shows how this was a site of male prostitution and, and sexual experimentation throughout the late imperial and the early Soviet periods.
0: Mm-hmm. And and so when we get to um, the revolution, what happens with this whole apparatus and system of, of local authorities who who were granting licenses to brothels? Does that completely collapse or what 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 then changes i mean uh, there must be an obvious change for the philanthropic groups that once existed right
1: yes so these institutions um that existed for the police and prostitution do collapse but that doesn't mean that um the sort of stigmatization of women who engaged in paid sex automatically went away so Mm um i guess histories of prostitution are a really good reminder of not just looking at political histories because they don't map very neatly onto regime change and collapse and often legislative changes have little impact on police and practices at the street level. So the stigmatization of women who sold sex really does stretch across regimes and between February and October 1917 when the Tsarist police are collapsed I still find archival examples of women engaged in prostitution being arrested by the new Petrograd city militia, um, and also the examination of women deemed to be engaged in prostitution by doctors in Riga in May 1917, and there's also evidence in Tomsk that these practices continued too. So the collapse of the networks of surveillance didn't necessarily mean a radical change in the way that those in authority viewed women who engaged in paid sex in this period.
0: Hmm. And and so with, let's say Lenin and Kalantai and Genotil, and, and the understanding of prostitution as a socio-economic problem, do you do you see uh, moving into the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties a, a change in the stereotypes or at least the the impressions of women who had been engaged in commercial sex? And what are what are the reforms or what are the changes?
1: So. In a sense, early Soviet approaches to prostitution were pretty radical So the Bolsheviks largely subscribed to Marxist interpretation of prostitution as a manifestation of women's political and economic marginalisation under capitalism. And they professed a desire to completely eradicate prostitution by providing women with alternative paid employment and tackling what they believe to be the key social causes. So women's political inequality, their financial dependence on men, as well as things like poverty and illiteracy. Now, the prostitution wasn't deemed a criminal offence in the first Soviet Criminal Code of 1922, and instead those who profited from prostitution were criminalised, such as brothel keepers and pimps. This is pretty radical because the police supervision of women engaged in paid sex was still in operation in the interwar period in certain British and French colonies, as well as in Japan, Italy, and specific regions of China in other contexts too. So for the first time, state policy was theoretically um, orientated towards alleviating the social and economic causes of prostitution. And the official campaign slogan for this attempt to eradicate prostitution in the early nineteen twenties was "the struggle with prostitution, not prostitutes." So mm-hmm. early state propaganda was quite keen to emphasise that women who engaged in prostitution were victims of capitalism and couldn't be blamed. And they also established labour dispensaries, which were institutions where women could get free housing and um, train and medical treatment and of course a good dose of Soviet propaganda in order to um be able to leave prostitution and engage in other types of work.
0: Right, but, right. <laughs> yeah, that's the, a lot. Um, the the labor dispensary but, part is so important in your book. I, I actually am really intrigued by that. Um, You know, for research going on, especially in global prostitution, that's kind of, where i wanted to ask the next question so i mean I, I see um your work contributing so much to spatial thinking and and to moral geographies and i wonder if i could ask how you imagine positioning this book in, in terms of the comparative and transnational histories out there of prostitution
1: well there's a lot to compare with russia in other contexts I found that a lot of the practices that I found happening in the Russian Empire, such as the brothel ranking system in attempts to sort of demarcate specific spaces in the city as spaces where lower class sexuality was acceptable and where it was unacceptable, um, also happened in China and in Italy. And also the classification of women engaged in paid sex as sort of vectors of disease and their potent stigmatization is something that stretches across various chronological and geographical settings and is it it seems to be ever present in state policy towards um prostitution today and lots of discussions of um, women who engage in sex work often mediate on this sort of moralizing um, and stigmatizing rhetoric so Uh there's actually a lot to compare and Uh as i said elia Russia's is not the only country to regulate prostitution in this way it takes a lot of inspiration from france which had its own state regulation system that lasted until after the Second World War. And a lot of the practices, the examination of women engaged in paid sex, the sort of lack of attention on um, ordinary male um, urban clients, this seems to be something that is ever present in the the history of prostitution, regardless of the period in which we're talking about.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think our listeners would be curious, uh, and I wonder if I could ask you to recommend Uh, a few books, maybe two or three authors or books that that you could think of um, on both the history of policing and the history of of prostitution in a larger perspective?
1: Yeah, so I mentioned them earlier, actually. Nancy Wingfield's book on um, the employee Austria is fantastic in looking at this complex world of commercial sex and sort of looking at the regional case studies um, and the way in which prostitution was understood and contested in different regions of that imperial space. Also, Keely Star holsteads work on partition Poland is another fantastic work um, that looks at the symbolic importance of prostitution in Poland um, on its drive towards independence in 1918. So these are two fantastic works for people who are interested in the history of prostitution in Eastern Europe. And, of course, for the, Philippa Hetherington's work on um, the trafficking women or the white slave sort of panic, it's Russian iteration is also really important and definitely worth checking out.
0: Mm -hmm. And do you see, I guess this is a a question about your conclusion, ramifications today? uh, I mean, I would really hope that this book is translated into Russian and read in Russian. Um, What what would you say, I, I guess, would you like to see as an agenda in the future for the understanding of of this in in Russia and in a Russian kind of larger context?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I guess it's really important to think about the different ways in which after the state regulatory apparatus collapses, how prostitution continues to be policed in society, whether it's deemed to be legal or not. So, for example, um, the stigmatization of women, as I mentioned who sold sex continued throughout the entire Soviet period. Um, women who were perceived to be engaged in paid sex um, or known sex workers were harassed by the police, even though there's no legal basis. Um, and this was done under various different um, forms of criminalization. So in 1922, the Soviet government introduced a law criminalizing the transmission of sexually transmitted infections, which remained in place for the entire Soviet period till the collapse of the USSR in 1991. And it's actually a law in the Russian Federation today. And this law was used to target um, sex workers and also people who are engaged in other types of sexualities that were deemed to be problematic, um, like same sex relations between men. I think where coverage is least is understanding the post-war period in the USSR. So at the moment, I'm actually um, editing a journal special issue on prostitution in 20th century Europe with Sonia Donsek, another excellent historian of prostitution. Great. Wonderful. And my contribution to that special issue is an article on the post for USSR. And it's sort of looking at this top-down and bottom-up um, perspectives again. So why the Soviet government continued to police prostitution, even though it officially said that it didn't exist because they'd eliminated all of the economic... Um, incentives for women engaging in prostitution and then the strategies that women who engaged in paid sex used to circumvent the kind of factor of criminalization of their work in this period and i think that much more work can be done on this post-war um, period and i know that other great historians will do this work in the future
0: yeah and I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit um since you're making so much that is invisible visible um, about your current research and, and maybe your current book project?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so right now I'm working on a project which feels a bit scary to call it a book project, um, but it's on military masculinity in the late Russian Empire. So this really comes out of the second chapter looking at men who paved the sex in late Imperial Russia. I just became very interested in masculinity um, and also the kind of interventions that the military and medical authorities made into the lives of soldiers and sailors in the late Russian Empire. So this project is entitled um, the Mazar's Men, Military Masculinity and Corporate Regulation in the Russian Empire. And in this project, I examine how the Russian military and civil authorities, with the input from medical experts, used bodily regulation in their efforts to construct the ideal soldier and sailor, and how military personnel from different ethnic and religious backgrounds experience this regulation. So it's, it's divided into four parts. I look at sexuality and sexual behavior, um, but then also disability, nutrition and physical culture, to examine mm-hmm. this impact of human and medical sciences upon military masculinities, but also to bring the Russian case into these wider international trends in light of modernization, urbanization and scientific development um, around mm-hmm. the turn of the 20th century.
0: Hmm. And, and so the final question, I guess, since we're running out of time and have about two minutes, I mm-hmm. wonder if you could give our audience the big takeaway points from your book. Yeah,
1: certainly can. So two minutes, no more. <laughs> two minutes? Ah, that's really hard. Okay, so I'll go really quickly. So the first one is a very unsatisfying but omnipresent um, argument of its complicated reactions to prostitution are incredibly complicated and very much depend on social um, cultural, economic circumstances of the individual, and there's just huge diversity in reactions to prostitution and interactions with the regulation system in late imperial Russia.
0: Um,
1: the second important point, I think, is that it's really important to look at these social, economic, cultural, and environmental characteristics of particular places in order to understand this complexity of official and popular reactions to prostitution. So this is an argument that historians of the Russian Empire and revolutions of 1917 have been making for decades. Mm-hmm. But it's something that's only recently become incorporated into historical scholarship on sexuality in the imperial Russian and Soviet contexts. And I think that shifting the history of sexuality away from the metropole is really important, as capital cities are often anomalies. You know, they're home to the most developed police apparatus, the most socially and ethnically diverse populations, and the most varied entertainment opportunities. So this is something that historians of Britain and North America have demonstrated, you know this importance of place, work and local community on the construction and regulation of sexuality. So here I'm thinking of Helen Smith's work on industrial England um, in the early 20th century and Peter Bogg's work on homosexuality in the Pacific Northwest. So hopefully my book um, brings this Russian Imperial example into this conversation of sort of decentering the history of sexuality.
0: Yeah. That's that's great. And actually, it was exactly two minutes. And it's a perfect plug for peripheral histories, this yes. great blog as <laughs> you well. Fell into pressure, that,
1: then.
0: <laughs> that, that was absolute, absolutely flawless. Um, Siobhan, I wanted to thank you for joining us here. We've been speaking with Siobhan Heron, and she has this new book out, just out with Oxford University Press 2021. It is called Policing Prostitution, regulating the lower classes in the late Russian empire. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And I'm Stephen Siegel, your host on the New Books Network and New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. Until next time.